So this morning, we're going to look at just eight short verses. We're going to be in Judges chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Judges' Obituary Page. The Judges' Obituary Page. So now we come to the accounts of three minor judges that are given one after the other, back to back. There's six minor judges in the entire book of Judges. So we're going to deal with fully half of these minor judges um, this morning. And recall these judges are called minor because we're given very little information about them as opposed to the six major judges. Now that does not mean that these judges were not important. There is a message that we can find in the account of these judges. So it would be a mistake for us to pass over these short accounts, merely viewing them as historical placeholders in the chronology of the judges. You know, the guys that fill in the gaps before we get to the, the, the major people. Um, so if you recall, the last sermon uh, we had in Judges, I ended with uh, verse 7 of chapter 12, the ending of Yephthah's account. And for context, we're going to start with that last verse from our previous sermon today as it ties in with the following verses and help gives us uh, context. Um, so if you have not already, please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 15. Please follow along. Yephthah judged Israel six years. Then Yephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. And after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. And he judged Israel Ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. To me, reading this over reminds me very much of reading the obituary page of a newspaper. You're just, we're just getting the highlights of the lives of these men. And it made me think when I was a very young police officer, I was uh, given a temporary duty assignment to the detective bureau. And in those days, detectives weren't guys that you know, the young cops really wanted to talk to because they were old, crusty, salty. They didn't seem to like anybody. Um, and they were up you know, you know, on the top floor of the of the police department in their own special area. And it was kind of like going in the lion's den if you went into the detective bureau as a young cop. You never knew who was going to attack you and snarling and ripping at you. But there was this one detective that was legendary in our department and in other departments. And he had this incredible memory. If you were looking for a bad guy or even a witness, you could go to Bill Oliver and ask him, do you know this fellow? And Bill Oliver would pause, and then he would tell you everything that person had been arrested for, where they lived, 
once upon a time, where they might live now, when they were last seen. He knew everything about everybody. And another interesting thing about Bill is that he would start the day after the briefing by the detective commander. All the detectives returned to their desk, and Bill would take out the newspaper, and he'd turn to the obituary page. And that was the first thing he would read in the newspaper, followed by the baseball box course. He told me, kid, everything you need to know in the newspaper is in the obituaries and in the baseball box scores. <laughs> Don't believe anything else you read in this rag. So he would just you know, use that information. He would catalog you know, um, what he needed to know to do his job. He had like a mental card file. Well, if we look at the accounts of these three judges, Ibsan, Elon, and Abaddon, we see only the bare facts of their lives, like where they're from, and their offspring, if any, how many years they judged their death and burial place. Just like if we were reading someone's obituary, that's the basic information, you know. Where were they born? Did they have descendants? You know, how many years did they work in whatever job? When they died and where the funeral is and where they're going to be buried. And unlike the accounts of the major judges, we find here there's no tales of intrigue. There's no uh, stirring accounts of battle against uh, external enemies. There's no faith-boosting signs from Yahweh that we see. And think about the many events that fill our lives between the facts of our being born, our marrying and having children, our working then dying and being buried. Think about them being left out. Does this lack of information make it difficult for us to relate to one another or to relate to these men? No, I don't think so. I think it's that we are so much alike in this sense, in the arc of our lives. We all share this. And we share this with these three men from oh so long ago. We all have the same milestones, the same major events in our life. Maybe because we could relate so closely with this that deep down we find it unsettling, like maybe reading the obituary page. You get to a certain point in your life where you may become uncomfortable to read that. You start to recognize more and more names, and you realize that one day, you know, your name is undoubtedly going to appear there. But this really, I think, generates the question, why are we told so little about these judges? No one can really say why we only have what basically amounts to their obituary notice. But by telling us so little about Ibzan, Elon and Abdin, we are told a lot about the Bible. And that brings me to my first point that I'd like to make, that God's word is selective. God's word is selective. So the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know because the Bible is theocentric. The Bible is really not about people. The Bible is about God. That doesn't mean that people don't count when it comes to God's word. The Bible is very concerned about people. And we are told a great deal about people, 
about some people. For example, we've, we've examined the account of Gideon in the book of, of Judges. And there's three full chapters devoted to Gideon. But really, the purpose of these chapters is not to relate Gideon's life to us with all of its problems, struggles, victories, and failures in and of themselves. No, I would say the purpose of the three chapters of Gideon is to depict Yahweh's saving activity. And it's the same throughout the Bible. We see how God acts through the accounts of people. And through these biblical accounts, we we share in some of the most intimate details of the lives of these people. And we should always keep in mind, these are real people. These aren't just ancient myths and fables. These people actually lived. They went through the things they went through. Things that we can understand, that we can relate to. Things that we struggle with. Things that we take pride and pleasure in. We're often privy to their darkest sins, their most innermost motives. But in all of this, the Bible's primary purpose is to reveal God to us. And this really would be an impossible task, wouldn't it, if the Bible was a human invention, in which case it could not in any way reveal God. It could only engage in speculation about God, presenting theories that God may be this or God may be that. Limited beings, finite beings such as we are, cannot know, knowing in an intellectual form, a being without limits. That is an infinite being. It's, it's beyond our ability to conceptualize a being that is totally other than what we are. <clears throat> As a means of illustration, think about the stories you've learned in school, the legends of the Greeks and the Romans and their pantheon of gods. There are many gods that they had that were just like human beings, really. Um, the way they acted, the jealousies they had, the, 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 the way they uh, um, would uh, get angry, the way they would play favorites, with a few magical superpowers tossed in. It was just like reading about people, wasn't it? But we can look at the world around us, and we can see that there must be a creator God. We'd be fools to say, no, this just happened by chance. But we only gain a limited inside, insight through God's handiwork. In order to understand God to the best of our abilities, to the, 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 the best of our capabilities, which we must understand will not be in a full sense in this life. And, and, I, and I really think that even in the everlasting life to come, we will not fully conceptualize God because God is always other. He's always different from us. So he, he is not a man in heaven like some man-made religions might theorize. But he is a trinity that has always been and always will be. So we'll be, we'll be limited in understanding that fully. But we'll know more, certainly. So that God, as he reveals himself in the scripture, he is the one that has to tell us about himself. We cannot know him 
otherwise. And he did this, of course, by inspiring human authors to write Scripture. And behind those human authors is the divine author, the words coming from God, the words that God wants us to hear, to read. The Bible, of course, tells us how God interacts with his creatures. It provides for us the foundation by which we know God. That's knowing in a relational sense besides the intellectual sense. God lays out how we are to have a relationship with him. So from a literary perspective, I would say when we take the Bible, then God the Trinity, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the main character in the Bible, in this story. It's the action of the triune God which moves the story of the Bible forward. And that's why it's so different from any other piece of writing. If you read ancient works, if you were to read, for example, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars or Flavius Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, you would likely find, I would say, that these ancient accounts have no direct bearing on your life. You may find them interesting, um, but it's doubtful that you would be able to relate much to what is going on in these writings. But isn't it different when you read the Bible? It speaks directly to us and to our life's circumstances. There's no other book that does that. How is it that an ancient piece of literature can do this? Well, we've already answered that question because it has a divine author. God is the primary source of it, the God who created you and me and every living human being since Adam and Eve decreed what the Bible would contain in its pages and decreeing every event, large and small, that we are given an account for, then divinely inspiring the human authors by using their individual personalities, their characters, the situation of their life, the times they were living in, the Bible wasn't written like through automatic writing where these, where these men were taken over and their hands just started to move. God, in some way that is so mysterious, was able to inspire these men to write exactly what he decreed they would write through the times they lived in and through who they were and through what they experience. That is, that is almost beyond our ability to comprehend. And because this is a collection of writings that span about 1,500 years, they were written to, I've said this before, but it's important to reinforce this. Reinforce this. The Bible was written to a specific people at a specific time. So we must understand the historical context of it to fully grasp it. But it was written for us also. It was written for all people through all times, those who came before us and those who will come after us. What other piece of ancient writing can do that? The Bible is the herald of good news, saying to all of God's people everywhere, As Isaiah 49 says, behold your God. Now understand that correctly. The Bible is not our God. The Bible reveals our God to us. And through God's word, we behold him. 
The second point I'd like to make this morning is God's providence is unknowable. God's providence is unknowable. Now, undoubtedly, everyone has heard of the term providence. But let me define it just so we're sure what I'm talking about here. Um, The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines providence as God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of human beings, especially those who follow him in faith. Okay, when you think about that definition, which I think is a very good one, it's nice, it's short, it's easy to understand, everything then lies within God's providence, doesn't it? To provide for the needs of people, especially God's people. How do you provide for the needs of people? Everything from the air we breathe and on is provision of God. It's God's providence. And providence literally means to see before. So God's providence occurs in human history before man can see the need for what God supplies in a given situation. God's providence is supplying for you before you know you need the thing God's providence is going to give you. That's the wonderful thing. And that gives us insight, doesn't it, into the love of God. That he loves his creation so much. He loves his people so much that he does this. And although we are assured of God's providence by his word, and we can recognize it in history and in our own lives, usually in hindsight, though, right? Providence remains an enigma. It's a mysterious, inexplicable puzzle. And we, we really shouldn't pretend otherwise. I think we get in trouble if we lose this idea. We want to be honest about this. We don't like to be without an explanation, do we? That's difficult for most of us. I know it's difficult for me. We want to appear wise to others. And in attempting to appear wise, we often babble foolishness. There's some things we just can't explain. And we should refrain from vain attempts to explain God's action and his providence. Yes, it's good to recognize that we must recognize God's providence. But to explain why God has done a certain thing often is, besides foolish, it's unhelpful. And it could be hurtful to do that. And providence really is a matter of Christian faith. Our faith in the Lord enables us to trust in him to do right in all things, no matter what we are faced with, no matter what we see, no matter what we encounter, as horrible and difficult as it may be, we know God is providing and he will do right in what we are experiencing. We see this illustrated, I think, in a, in a very moving way, in Abraham's faith in Yahweh, after being commanded to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. In Genesis 22:8, we read, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Commanded to do this thing, yet knowing that God will do right, and God will provide. That is is an example of faith. 
In our world, we encounter many counterfeit forms of providence that we must be aware of. Counterfeits such as fate. It's just fate. There's no control over it. It just happens. Very close to the other counterfeits of luck or fortune. Then we have serendipity. You know, that's the Bob Ross happy accident sort of thing, you know. This is this, this little tree, just a happy accident. Serendipity that I, that I ended up, you know, moving my brush in such a way that I created this tree. That's the only time I paint anything pretty is through happy accidents. But History also can be a counterfeit. We're seeing this more and more because the, the new Marxist idea, the slogan they're using, is being on the right side of history, appealing to a supposed inevitability of future events. History then, in this sense, takes on a divine dimension. We understand history as those things that have happened in the past. Well, no, that's been changed, just been flipped. And beware that you're not on the wrong side of history because you know what happens to those people. They get airbrushed out of the photos because they disappear and who knows where they go. Progress is another counterfeit when it's viewed as an unstoppable force that's propelling mankind forward. Not just looking at something in a historical fashion and seeing how we progress, but progressivism. You know, we must bow to progress. That will lead the way. Nature, nature in itself is, a, is another one. And then from the Darwinian schools, we have natural selection and the survival of the fittest, which basically is declaring that providence is unnecessary. It's a very cold and cruel and calculating way of looking at the world. And then lastly, we have our favorite of, the, of this part of the 21st century, science. Just trust the science. Science has it well in hand. And science has smart people. And the rest of us need to listen to the smart people and just follow the science. Well, they've changed the definition of science then, haven't they? But all of these things can very easily take our minds off of God's providence. Our culture has, has great impact on us. We must realize that. And we must guard against these things in our thinking. You know, I, t- I try very hard not to use these terms when I'm talking in everyday conversation. And perhaps some of you do too, but it so rolls off our tongue to say good luck or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and really, well, there's, we know there's no luck about it. We know that God is in control of everything. So let's consider God's providence in the stories of Jephthah, Ibzan, and Abdon. As you recall, Jephthah has only one daughter, had only one daughter, one child. And he becomes childless, Jephthah does, through his his rash and tragic vow. No children, no descendants. To the Jewish mind, hearing this story or reading it, This is the utmost tragedy. Without descendants, basically, your name ceases to exist upon the earth in the ancient Jewish mind. But just prior to Yephthah's account, we have Yair, who has 30 sons. 
So we have a man with 30 sons followed by this man who basically, my understanding of the story, he actually has his daughter killed. But even if you, if you reject that and say, no, she just had to remain a virgin, in any event, he's childless. He has killed off his line. Yephthah's line ends with him. And following Yephthah, we come to Ibzan. Ibzan, again, verses 8 through 9. After him, Yephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. Again, Yephthah's one childless daughter means that he's impoverished himself. His line dies with him compared to Ibzan. 30 daughters, and brought in 30 more daughters to marry his sons. Ibsan is the great example of wealth in the ancient Jewish culture. And what's interesting here, out of all of the judges' accounts that we have, daughters are mentioned only in connection with these two men, Yephthah and Ibsan. Our attention is being drawn to that. When we see these things that are unusual, which the way we read the Bible, it's often difficult, I understand, to see that because we read a bit at a time. Everyone has busy lives. Hopefully, I pray that you have daily Bible reading time. But in anyone's daily Bible reading time, I doubt you're going to read the entire book of Judges. And if you do, then you might notice these things. But that's the job of a preacher to help you see these things, to point this out. That, look at this. Daughters are only with these two guys. After Yiftah's barrenness comes Ibzan's fullness. This highlights the tragic consequences of Yiftah's foolish vow. And this contrast, I say, is reinforced by the judges after Ibzan. Elon, apparently childless. There's, there's no mention of any descendants for Elon. So I don't think that's an oversight. I think he had no children. Then we come to Abdon. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. This man had 70 descendants. So, so Elon and Abdon are comparative. They run parallel to Yephthah and Ibzan. And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, talks about the striking distance between Yephthah and Ibzan. He says, what a difference was there between Ibzan's family and that of his immediate predecessor, Yephthah. Ibzan has 60 children and all married. Yephthah but one, a daughter, that dies or lives unmarried. Some are increased, others are diminished. Both are the Lord's doing. Why does God give to one and take from another? An angel of God warns Joseph to take the child Jesus and flee to Egypt to escape the murderous Herod. How about the other little toddler boys in Bethlehem that are not warned whose parents cannot flee from Herod's murderous henchmen. 
In Acts chapter 12, we read about Peter. He's thrown in prison by Herod Agrippa to be executed. Herod Agrippa is waiting for after Passover. Then it's to the sword for Peter. But on the eve of execution, the night before his day of death, Peter is rescued from prison by an angel. And the chains that bound him fall free. He's sleeping between two guards. And the guards are not awakened by this angel who undoubtedly is illuminated, who strikes Peter in the side and says, get up. And these guys just slumber through it, these two soldiers. Who we've all heard what happens to the soldiers if they lose a prisoner. You lose a prisoner that's going to be executed, you will be executed. And in those days, you didn't go to jail for 60 days or for a year. You weren't sentenced to jail just to serve your time and then get out. If you went into prison, you were going to die or you were going to be banished. Maybe the Romans would send you to a salt mine where you would surely die a slow death. But there was no parole out of prison. There was no release date. And then Peter gets up and he walks past two guards who are standing sentry duty. He walks past them as though he's invisible. They don't even see him. And then the iron gate of the prison to the city swings open. And Peter passes out that gate into freedom. And he goes to the house where the church is gathered, where they're praying for his deliverance. And the people praying for his deliverance can't even believe he's been delivered because it's just so miraculous. Nobody escapes from the Romans. You can't do it. But God did it, didn't he? But in that same chapter, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, is executed. Agrippa cuts off his head with a sword. Why is Peter rescued and James not? Is it that Peter is more beloved than James by the Lord? No. Those little babies in Bethlehem. Is our God uncaring about the fate of children, of wee babies? No, no, absolutely not. But I can't explain why these things happened in God's providence. These are examples of how it's, these, these acts of providence by God are, are mysterious. Sometimes they're marvelous. Think about Job, another great example. All of his children are killed, his servants murdered, and his livestock stolen. His, his whole life is basically ripped from him. We are told that Job mourns, and rightfully so, when we lose loved ones. Even though we know we will be united with them, it is right, it is proper, it is good that we mourn their loss, because it is a loss that we suffer. Even though we know, without a doubt, with complete certainty that we will meet again. It's like putting a loved one on a plane and watching them fly away back home. Your heart breaks, even though you know you will see them again. 
But Job mourns and worships the Lord. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognizes the providence of God. So like I said, we're given no answers to the enigma of God's providence other than God alone is God. And this flies in the face of the counterfeit providences we spoke of that are offered by the world. Nothing angers natural man, that is sinful man, more than the fact that he is, in not, he is not in control of everything. You talk to anyone who's not a believer or has a different view of salvation than we do other than the, um, the reformed view, the idea that they do not control every aspect of their life sets them over the edge. But the Bible is full of this teaching that God is in control of it all. Otherwise, how do you explain these things? Just mere happenstance? God lost control for a moment? He wasn't paying attention? He took his hands off the wheel? No, none of that makes sense. None of it matches the character of God as he's revealed himself. So we cannot claim to know why God works the way he does. But that's not to say that we cannot ask why. Why is a good question. We are allowed to ask these things, and there's times when we must ask these things. Often, I will admit to you, the answers will not be completely satisfying. But we still wrestle with things. The questions of human existence will always puzzle us until we accept what the Bible is telling us, that God alone is sovereign over all things. The prophet Isaiah reminds us of this. In chapter 40, verse 28, he writes, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So Isaiah is reminding us that God has understanding of everything that he does. There's never a time when God said, well, that didn't work out well, did it? There's never a time when God says, maybe I should have gone to plan B. Complete understanding of everything. Legally, if we're talking legally, we would say that God has specific intent in everything that he does, in every action, in everything that occurs in the world. But this understanding of God is not given to us, no matter where we look, we will not find it. Isaiah tells us why. Because it is unsearchable. Unsearchable means look, 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 look. It's, you're not going to find it. It's not there for humans to discover. By faith, we must be willing, if need be, to be baffled and to bow and worship the Lord in the dark. This is the witness that we are given of Yephthah and Ibzon, why Yephthah is bereft of all, and Ibzon is blessed far beyond everyone else. These short accounts of these three minor judges also give testimony to the fact that man can never provide what God 
provides. We read in, this, in these eight short verses, we read how many years each of them judged Israel. In, in verse 9, Ibsan judged Israel seven years. In verse 11, Elon judged Israel ten years. In verse 14, Abdon judged Israel eight years. And in the book of Judges, the entire book of Judges, we find three major types of time formulas. First off, the number of years Israel serves foreign oppressors. These occur in conjunction with the narratives of each of the six major judges. With the major judges, we have foreign oppressors, and we're told exactly how many years these foreign oppressors oppressed Israel. Then the second uh, time formula is the number of years the land enjoyed rest. You remember that phrase, the land had rest? We haven't seen it since Gideon. It stops with Gideon. Gideon is like a major time marker in Israel's apostasy. Then the number of years served by a judge, as we see here with Ibsan, Elon, and Abdon. And this, the, the, this time formula occurs only after Gideon. So we have the number of years the judges judge after Gideon, and then before Gideon, the land having rest. Israel had forfeited the privilege of being granted rest, which only the Lord can provide. See, what we're learning here is that men cannot provide rest. Now recall, rest is not just a matter of taking it easy. Rest is the, is the state of security and safety and stability that only God can provide. Even though there's a, we, we should see, there is, I think, a semblance of normalcy in the tenure of these minor judges. There is not complete anarchy yet. There are no outside oppressors robbing and pillaging. But Israel, does no, Israel no longer knows the gift of divine rest, only the human activity of judging. Life goes on, but the quality is different. Something is missing. Something is absent. The appearance is deceiving, though. But God is never deceived. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, in the letters to the seven churches, we find that the church in Sardis tried and failed to put on a show of faith and obedience. But the Lord Jesus told them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We might fool other people, but we never fool God. And my third and last point is this. God's word makes us confront what we would rather avoid. God's word makes us confront what we would rather avoid. Here, in these verses we're examining this morning, we see in rapid succession the deaths of God's appointed leaders in Israel. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died. Then Ibzan died. Then Elon the Zebulonite died. Then Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite died. Of course, we know intellectually that all mortals must one day die. 
but most of us don't think about that much until, like here in Judges chapter 12, death hits us in a series of blows. It's like the Toledoth or the account of Adam in Genesis chapter 5. If you bother to read biblical genealogies, something in that chapter in Genesis will strike you. We see the result of Adam being banished from God's garden. After each of Adam's descendants, we find the phrase, and he died, 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 and he died. Nine generations are listed driving home what Adam lost in his rebellion against God and what was brought in. Death was brought in. It's unavoidable. The fact of death batters us and hammers us. And we can picture our own obituary or the obituary of those we love. God's word does not let us turn away from the results of our human rebellion against him. We are forced to confront it as hard as it may be. And there's a reason for that. It's part of God's providence that we must look at this ugly scene of death, that we must know that it's coming for us, that we must know that God deals with it. During a large part of my career, I was a motorcycle officer. And one of the duties of a motorcycle officer, the motorcycle squad, is that we would represent the department of police funerals. We would be part of the honor guard that would escort the hearse. I'm sure you've all seen videos, news footage of police funerals where there's a line, double column of police motorcycles as far as you can see. And I've been at so many of those standing in formation with other motorcycle officers, facing the family who's lost a loved one. And since we'd been at them over and over and over again, we knew what would come. Police funerals are very traditional. They're full of ceremony. After the chaplain or the pastor was done at the graveside, we could see the rifle squad making ready. Seven men armed with rifles ready to give a 21-gun salute. And the first volley would go off, and the family would jump as though the bullet struck them. The second volley would go off, and they would jump again. The third and last volley would go off. The jump would would be there, but it would be subdued. Then the bugler, sounding last call. We'd watch the family weep. And then a piper would pipe amazing grace. And strong men would try not to cry. And we'd watch the family as these scars were formed in their heart. These wounds were placed upon them by the sudden and tragic and unexpected death. Now, the death of a police officer doesn't hurt more to a family than any other death. I know many of you in your personal stories 
I know the losses that you've suffered. I know the wounds that you carry. They are the same. Scars upon your heart. But Christ Jesus, our Savior, abolished death and brought life in immortality to light through the gospel. From the ugliness and horror of death, Christ brings us glory of life, eternal in perfect peace and harmony with God. Could we understand the preciousness of God's gift of life to us if we did not experience death? I don't think we could. If it's just something we had, would we recognize it? But think about how precious it is from our perspective when we've suffered through these horrible blows. And we will suffer in our years to come. God willing, we will be here and we will have to experience the results of that first sin. Only Jesus Christ can heal us of these wounds and scars. The prophet Isaiah again tells us in these very, the very well-known passage of the suffering servant. Chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, I'll read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. Wounds in the Hebrew, haburah, can also mean stripes. It can mean slashes, blows inflicted, injury, things that leave scars. The stripes upon our souls, the wounds upon our hearts will be healed completely by our Lord Jesus Christ. What he bore in his atoning death will be an everlasting balm of healing for us. There's nothing else that will heal the wounds that that we have all suffered, beloved. Only our Lord can do that. Think about the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke, as he writes about it, the authorities are coming to arrest Jesus. Simon Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. And in verse 51, Luke tells us, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Think about this. Healing a man who is taking you to your execution. There's a great significance in the details that Luke gives us. Basically, I think this is an enacted parable of what was later revealed to Paul by the risen Lord Jesus. Paul lays this out in logical sequence to the Romans in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Peter's human response, very human response, was to lop off the very instrument by which a man in need of the Savior could hear the message of salvation. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we must take care that our actions do not prevent the gospel message from being heard. We must not lop off the ears of our enemies. For he who is your enemy today may be your brother tomorrow. That is in the Lord's providence, not in ours. God's word takes us beyond ourselves, doesn't it? This is not within the power of humans, I would say, to do. This is only something God can do to take us beyond ourselves and our limited horizons of human understanding and experience into, into partial, which is as much as maybe as possible, like I said before, partial insight of God's eternal perspective. Our horizon is so low God's horizon is in eternity. In eight bare fact verses of three minors judges' obituaries, God speaks to us. And really, he tells us more than we realize at first, doesn't he? Because only he can put it in the proper context for our understanding by his revealed word. We must ask him to teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom, like the psalmist said. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for what you reveal to us. Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit you grant us the ability to understand, that you grant us the ability to remember that we consider your message, we consider the words that you have had written for us, that we understand how we may apply them to our life, and by doing so, that we may glorify you, that we may love one another as Christ loves us, that we may bear one another up, that we may help each other with the trials and tribulations, the wounds and scars that are to come until we are united with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, bless your beloved here as they go out. Keep them safe, Father. Bring them back if that is within your will. We praise you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.